0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony
1: Perkins. Well, good afternoon and welcome to this Friday edition of Washington Watch. Hope you've had a fantastic week and welcome to the end of it. I'm Jody Heiss, your Friday host and Senior Vice President here at the Family Research Council. Thank you so much for making Washington Watch a part of your day today all right despite consistent snow throughout the day thousands and thousands of pro-life americans came to washington dc for the 51st annual march for life
0: we can stand with every woman for every child and we can truly build a culture that cherishes and protects life god bless you thanks for braving the weather
1: Of course, that was Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, closing his inspiring speech today at the March for Life. That is going to be a focus, a major focus of the program today. Uh, We have a lot of other things that are taking place. I'll be joined here in just a little while by uh, Ken Blackwell to discuss efforts on election integrity, a major issue and concern for millions of Americans, and then also, Uh, An attempt by the World, uh, World Health Organization to usurp the sovereign power, not only of the United States, but many other nations. Travis Weber will be joining us to talk about that. And Macy Petty will be joining me with some new developments in the battle to protect women's sports. But the March for Life, what a great day it is. It happens once a year, and we here at the Family Research Council are so proud to be part of this incredible day. Now, you're not going to see much reporting on the March for Life from the legacy media. They're not going to cover this incredible event much more than maybe a word or so, if they say anything at all. But friends, that's one reason why Washington Watch exists. We are literally here to provide for millions of Americans uh, coverage that you're not going to find anywhere else. So we want to get straight to it today. We want to get straight to the March for Life. Joining me now straight from today's March for Life and from there straight to the FRC studio in Washington is our Washington Stand reporter, Sarah Holliday. Sarah, welcome back to Washington Watch. watch. I hope you've had a moment to uh, thaw out from an incredibly cold day today.
2: (laughs) Hi, Jody. Thanks for having me. I'm definitely a lot warmer
3: now.
1: Well, uh, you deserve a good cup of coffee and a blanket and hot chocolate or whatever helps you out. All right, for those of us who are not able to be there today, give us kind of the flavor of today's March for Life.
2: Yeah, well, Jody, today was actually my first time ever having the pleasure to attend a March for Life. And so for anybody watching who's maybe never been to one themselves or just couldn't make this year work out, I will say happily that it was just such a blessing to be there. I show up and immediately am met with just joy from the, the all the people who are there. They are passionate to be there. Despite how cold it was, um, they were all just so excited. You can just tell by the laughter and the engagement with one another and with the speakers. And it's as though there was no other place that they would rather be. So for anybody who wasn't able to, to be there today, the flavor of the event, I would have to say, was just very sweet and It felt as though the National Mall was a beacon of light today for a world that is dark and desperately needs light.
1: Well, I'm so glad that you were able to get a taste of that. It is uh, truly an incredible event and I'm so glad that you were able to be a part of it. You mentioned some of the speakers, uh, some of them included. We just saw a brief clip by Speaker Mike Johnson. Representative Chris Smith was there. Former NFL tight end Benjamin Watson and focus on the family president Jim Daly were among the speakers that were there. And we, I want to get to some of that here in just a few moments. But you also mentioned the weather. Uh, we both have mentioned that. It's been a story all week in Washington, D.C. Uh, how did the weather affect today's events?
2: Part of me wants to say that it didn't affect the event. When I first showed up, it was relatively close to the rally starting, and the crowd was kind of small, so I was a little bit nervous at first that maybe the snow was going to hold some people off from coming in. But my assumption is that many people likely had plans and were already in the area, maybe could just walk to the mall. I do know that some people drove in from out of state this morning just to be there with intentions of going home tonight despite the weather. So I'd have to say that even though it was cold and there was constant flurries, nobody was dry, nobody was warm. I, I don't think it actually deterred many people from showing up today because this cause is just far too worth it to miss out.
1: Well, it really is. This is a huge cause. In fact, this has been a major player, and people need to realize this. This was a major player for about 50 years to help get Roe v Wade overturned, it is the people of the United states pro life individuals stepping up and making the journey to washington d c year after year after year, and their voices have been heard and and this year, no exception in spite of the inclement weather uh, Now you were there as a certainly as a pro life advocate, as we all are, but you were also there as a Washington stand reporter, so You were not just observing or participating, you were there talking to people, getting some information. What was the buzz like from the crowd? What were they excited about?
2: Yeah, I would have to say that the overarching theme today that I noticed at least is a push to just keep fighting, to keep marching, because although Roe is done, it's gone, it's been overturned, there's still so much work to do. And so I actually think that people are excited to keep doing that work. But I couldn't help but think about Galatians today, all throughout the event, and when Paul writes, not to grow weary in doing good, because it did seem as though the push and the excitement was centered around continuing this fight. But the reality is, is that this is a good fight because we're acknowledging the inherent value and dignity that people have being made in the image of God. And yet this is a message that the world just doesn't like to hear. And it's really unfortunate to say the least, but as part of their opposition to the message, the people who proclaim it get a lot of pushback. And so it's a good message. It needs to be proclaimed. It needs to be fought for, but it's not easy. And so. I think that today was a wonderful combination of encouragement and excitement, hyping up because this is a battle that is not over and I think people are excited to keep fighting because we're making we're make, we're, we're claiming victories, we're making progress. The Lord is guiding us through this. All glory to him and I think people are very excited about that and they should be.
1: Uh, they should be and that's awesome news. And uh, w- while you were talking Uh, We were able to show some footage, literally thousands and thousands of people all over the place uh, with the snow. And, uh, you know, that is a heartwarming thing to watch. Even though the weather was filled with snow, it warms the heart to see people out there standing for life, marching for life praying for life, praying for our legislators, having many of these individuals speak to the crowds. I mean, it really is an amazing event. Now, as you were talking and interacting with different people, uh, were were there any groups like that traveled a long distance in spite of the weather? Did you run into people who uh, maybe were here for the first time? They traveled a long way. They just wanted to be a part of this. Uh, What did you experience in terms of uh, that type of thing with people that you spoke with?
2: Yeah, the people that I spoke with had all actually been to a march before, if not several marches, which I thought was wonderful. I did not have the pleasure of speaking with the people that traveled from a long distance, but I know that they were there. I was trying to keep a tally of all the states that were represented, and I'm pretty sure most of America was there representing their states. And I know that people were there from Canada and all over the West Coast, which feels pretty far away sometimes. But... I, I didn't speak to them personally, but I know that they were there and just as excited as everybody else. So that was extremely wonderful to know that just so many people have traveled from all over the place. You know, once again, despite the weather. Um, but even the, that's costly. It costs a lot of money, especially right now. Plane tickets are crazy expensive, but people were there. And it was it was heartwarming to see that it was beautiful, actually.
1: I had mentioned earlier some of, the, some of the other speakers that were there. I want to play a clip uh, from New Jersey Congressman Chris Smith, and I want to get your reaction to this. He was one of the, the speakers that was there. He had this to say, play clip three, please. The new Marist National Poll found that 83 percent of all Americans, including 75 percent of Democrats, support, I say again, support pregnancy resource centers. They, like all of us in this human rights movement, stand with every woman and for every child. All right. Give me your reaction to that. He had he had some phenomenal statistics there. He sure did. And
2: something that also comes to mind when I remind him of the statistics that he brought up is that he, if I remember correctly, he heavily emphasized the respect and the love and the kindness that is not just important, but necessary within the pro-life movement and within people who are pro-life and extending their hand to the people who need hope. And pregnancy centers, once again, if I remember correctly, he said are an an oasis of love. And pregnancy centers are truly the key to this pro-life movement because these are women who are scared and they don't think that they have another option. And unfortunately, not choosing life sometimes seems like the only one, but By bringing these pregnancy centers to light, they can now be aware of the fact that there are so many people who want to help them, even just a hug and a shoulder to cry on. But it goes so far beyond that. These pregnancy centers are advancing all the time. It is a huge priority right now, especially. And they can offer financial aid. They offer strollers and and. Substance for the child to grow healthy and strong and even for the mother to be supported in her day-to-day And so it doesn't surprise me at all that. There are a lot of people who do support Pregnancy centers because we really need to be supporting them. They are a huge aspect of the pro-life movement and What we're trying to do to help these women
1: They they are a huge thing and I love that terminology too an oasis of love that's uh, what an incredible description of what these resource centers provide and what they what they offer people. But uh, as as he mentioned, these eighty three percent of Americans support pregnancy resource centers. That's a that's a huge amount, especially when we watch hundreds of them, literally hundreds of them, being assaulted and and uh, uh, criminal activity and so forth being uh, portrayed on these resource centers, 77% of Democrats also support these pregnancy resource centers. This is information the legacy media is not going to put out there to people. And I'm sure you ran into folks probably, whether you realize it or not, who have been a part of some of the benefits uh, and the love that these resource centers provide.
2: Actually, I'm glad you brought that up, because I showed up, especially once we started marching. I It crossed my mind. I was wondering if there were Democrats there, and maybe even people from the LGBT community, because stereotypically, like you mentioned, according to the Legacy Media, they don't support pro-life. They don't support these mothers in these pregnancy centers. But that's just not true, because you don't have to be conservative or Christian even to acknowledge the natural, innate dignity that a human being has. Is That's part of it being natural and innate, is that anybody can recognize it. And so while we were marching, I heard people chanting. That wasn't surprising, but I looked over and the people who were chanting were holding up signs that said LGBTQ plus Democrats pro-life. And so that's the exact group that nobody probably thought was gonna be there. And yet they were there.
1: Wow, that is amazing. I wish we had a picture of that sign. That's, uh, that's fantastic. Sarah Holiday. thank you so much for participating in your very first March for Life and for representing uh, Washington Stand and FRC there today. We appreciate it and thank you for coming on Washington Watch. Thank you so much
2: for having me. All
1: right, friends, we're going to continue uh, further discussion about the life issue. Mary Zock will be joining me after the break. As we discussed, four key elements that need to be talked about as we discuss with friends and neighbors and so forth this issue of life. You don't want to miss the insight she's going to provide. We'll get to it right after this break, so stay tuned. We'll be back in a moment.
4: Get this free guide at frc.org slash pro-life men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives.
1: And welcome back to Washington Watch. I am Jody Heiss, your Friday host, and an honor to have you joining us today. We appreciate it very much. And by the way, just a reminder yet again, our website is tonyperkins.com. There are tons of... Uh, valuable resources there for you, so I encourage you to check it out if you've not already done so. TonyPerkins.com. All right, today marked the second March for Life since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, and of course that overturned decision was nearly a 50-year struggle in our attempt to try to right the wrong of that 1973 decision. But now, as the march approached and as the 2024 elections are right upon us, there are some political pundits who are recommending that Republicans somehow leave the unborn to speak for themselves. In fact, there are even some so-called pro-life individuals who have argued that if Republicans wanna win in 2024, they need to find middle ground on this whole issue of life. What does that even mean? I mean, what is middle ground when you're talking life or death? But anyways, even if there is some sort of political strategy of middle ground on the issue, would that be a winning strategy for this election cycle? Well, joining me now to discuss this is Mary Zock, who is FRC's director of the Center for Human Dignity, Mary, welcome back to the show. Great to have you
5: thanks so much for having me on, Jody.
1: Well, it is good to have you let's uh Let's start with this This whole argument of middle ground we're hearing more and more people say Republicans need to find middle ground pro life uh need to find middle ground if you want to win the election, that's where it is. uh What is this whole issue? Of so-called middle ground when it comes to life.
5: Well, this is what we're hearing, and and we're we're seeing that this isn't working. as As you said, you can either kill a baby or you can't. You can you can choose life or you can choose death. There's no middle option. We can't say it's not it's not logically consistent to say sometimes you can kill a baby, but other times you can't. And so we need candidates who are willing to speak the truth. And and for the last 50 years, Republicans have been strong on this. The the Republican Party platform talks about protecting life, protecting all unborn life. And and that's something that we really need to embrace.
1: Well, we really do. And I I love the way that you uh, state, implore, really, that we need to take into this. We need to lean into this issue like we have been doing for fifty years. It seems like ever since the Roe v. Wade decision took place, everybody's become scared of the issue is now running from it. But you wrote an outstanding article in the Washington Stand where you talk about four ways that Republicans should talk about this whole life issue. And I thought it was just extremely uh, well written and well stated. So let's, let's talk about this, Mary. What, what are some of the ways that you think we can effectively, and in a winning way, in a way that compels people to agree with us and so forth, what are the ways that we should be talking about this life issue?
5: Well, the first thing that candidates need to do is they need to talk about what they're trying to do. We're not trying to ban something. We're trying to protect someone. And the problem is that we refer to numbers and statistics so often that people forget that the 63 unborn child, 63 million unborn children who have been killed in the united states since abortion was legalized here each one of them was an individual human being whose name we, someone should know whose cry a mother should have heard whose footsteps a father should have helped take whose whose grandparents should have been at their graduation. You know, each one of these is a child. And and it's a gift for that child to be to be here in the United States. And this is a place where we should celebrate that. So we need to talk about what we're trying to do. The second thing that we need to do is we need to describe who abortion kills. We have a number of abortion survivors we have melissa odin we have claire caldwell we have gianna jensen and and these are actual human beings who have lived through the attempts that the abortion industry has made on their lives democrats should be forced to face to literally face the people that they have tried that their policies have tried to kill. And, and we need to bring those stories home and and to make them do that. Abortion is a, a gruesome torture. And we can't just let Democrats get away with calling it a choice. We need to we need our candidates to be making promises that they can keep. They need to say things like, I will defend life to the greatest extent that I possibly can, and then give specifics and, and talk about you know the fact that they'll 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 demand that legislation that's already on the books protecting the unborn be enforced and then finally we need to talk about moms every abortion takes an unborn child's life and every abortion hurts a mother sometimes physically sometimes mentally and always spiritually and these, sto- the stories of these women who have been harmed by the abortion industry are real and powerful. There are girls who delivered their unborn child into the toilet thinking that it was just going to be a clump of cells. Cause that's what the woman at Planned Parenthood told them. We need to tell those stories and we need to tell the stories of the women who were pressured by their boyfriend, by their, by their boss, by their, by their partner, by, by their parents to abort their child and the trauma that they have lived through. These individual stories change hearts, and that's what we need to do.
1: I couldn't agree with you more, Mary. We've got about a minute or so left. Real quickly, debunk for us, if you will, this whole myth that the Democrats continue to parrot and put forward, that when laws uh, are there in place to protect unborn babies, somehow women die because of these laws. Well,
5: and that's the favorite talking point of the Democrat Party right now is that when an unborn child is protected, a woman will die. And they have brought forth countless examples to try to make Americans believe that. But the reality is an an abortion is the intentional taking of an unborn child's life. There are really tragic situations where, when we treat mothers, an unborn child tragically dies. But everyone is devastated in those instances. When an abortionist performs an abortion and a child lives, they call it a failed abortion. No one is devastated right. at that, that, and and so we need to be driving home. It's not an abortion if you're trying to save a mother's life.
1: Mary Zock, thank you so much for joining us today on Washington Watch. We appreciate it. And listen, I encourage everyone to check out her article on the uh, Washington stand on this issue. Mary, again, thank you for joining us. All right, friends, stay tuned. Much more Washington Watch coming your way right after this break. And welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your Friday host, Jody Heiss. Welcome aboard. Glad to have you. All right. With the 2024 election season now officially well underway, we here at FRC and Washington Watch, we want to continue tracking the election integrity efforts, specifically on the state levels. I actually have a book on this topic coming out uh, at the end of next month. But one of the questions that I receive over and over again are questions like how can we as voters trust that our local polling place is going to be legitimate, that it's going to be fair. Uh, People want to know what kind of efforts are underway to provide better election integrity. And where could states and state legislatures potentially be doing more to secure fair elections? Well, joining me to help answer these questions and more is someone who is heavily focused on this issue. In fact, he has written the foreword to my upcoming book, an expert in this whole arena of election integrity, Ken Blackwell. He's a senior fellow at the Family Research Council and the special advisor for election integrity at FRC Action. Ken, welcome back to Washington Watch. Always great to see you, my friend.
3: Hey, Jody, good to be with you, sir.
1: All righty. Well, let's begin with a 30,000-foot view, if we can. What, what kind of bills across the country have been passed so far to help this issue of election integrity?
3: Well, Jody, it starts with people understanding uh, in rough terms, if you're not in the game, if you're not in the room, you're not in the game. Uh, so that means that uh, each citizen uh, has to commit itself, him himself or herself to being involved in the process to being engaged to the fullest extent of their their ability uh, look let me just give you an example one of the things that we witnessed in 2000 uh in tw- the 2020 election was the use of private dollars in a partisan and selective way uh to tilt the playing field uh the uh, ceo of Facebook mark zuckerberger Zuckerberg, uh, was famous for dropping in about a half of a, a billion dollars for those purposes. Well, we, in, in, in our efforts organizing across the country, we were able to block him in New York, neck of the woods, Fulton County, uh, <coughs> Georgia. Uh, we, we, in fact, have seen a, a rash of uh, attempts to complicate our, our voting process with ranked choice voting. Uh, confusing people and and making uh, voting uh, overly complicated. We've defeated that uh, in Arizona through grassroots activities and coalition coalition building. Uh, in in Wisconsin, uh, where there was an effort to uh, to make sure that they could continue to have unsecured uh, drop boxes for mail in ballots, uh, sort of just pop up across the the state, that was defeated uh, through concentrated and coalition efforts. So it all starts with people getting involved. We have 3,100 counties across the the country with tens of thousands of precincts, and we have to have citizens involved. And so we're going across the country. We're organizing people. For instance, tomorrow, right outside of Orlando in the villages. Uh, there are going to be 300 uh, citizens of Florida uh, organized by uh, AMAC and and the American Civil uh, Rights Union. Uh, it's called Boot um, Camp for Baby Boomers. Uh, and so it's going to tell uh, older citizens, you know, how they can get involved. It's going to train them in, in, in observing uh, and so that's that's what we're all about, coalition building and getting citizens involved at the local level.
1: That is awesome. I want to uh, just the fact that there's uh, legislation happening, there's groups being trained, there's things that are happening. I want to put up here well, there's a couple of different organizations that are, are giving a state by state analysis, if you will. If people want to find out what's happening in their individual states, good or bad. Uh, we have American uh, America First Policy Institute. Uh, they have a map, and I, we're, we're showing that right now. For those of you who are viewing, write that down. America First Policy Institute, that's coming from their Center for Election Integrity. And then also the Heritage Foundation has a state election map as well. And so these are two great resources. You can find them, by the way, on our website at frcaction.org or tonyperkins.org. Uh, com if you want to get more info with this. But what would you say, Ken, to someone, someone who's concerned uh, about what's happening with, you mentioned drop boxes or ballot harvesting or other practices uh, that they may fear may not be on the level? Real quickly, we've got about a minute. What should people do to be engaged?
3: Well, they first, it should be registered to vote. They should go to their county uh, election office and actually find out through their various the the two parties, how they can get involved. Again, if you're not in the room, you're not in the the game. And we have people now concentrating on looking how they can be observers of ballot tabulation centers. Uh, We must make sure that it's it's transparent and that people can have confidence that uh, folks who are voting should be voting and that we have a fair uh, and transparent count of the ballots. Get involved.
1: Well, there's nothing more important than elections. At the end of the day, if we lose fair elections, we lose everything. So for us to stay vigilant on this issue is of supreme importance. Kim Blackwell, thank you for your incredible leadership on this topic. Thank you for joining us this evening on Washington Watch.
3: Thank you, Jody. God bless.
1: God bless you as well. All right, friends, you can get those maps again by visiting FRCaction.org. You can also go to TonyPerkins.com to see these maps and other resources available there for you. So please, please take advantage of that. This issue of election integrity is vitally important. All right, stay tuned for more Washington Watch right after the break. Much more straight ahead.
4: Get this free guide at frc.org/slash prolifemen to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives.
1: And good afternoon. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Jody Heiss, Senior Vice President here at FRC. All right, President Biden's Health and Human Services Department is currently seeking feedback on the proposed World Health Organization pandemic preparedness agreement. This agreement is frightening. It could seriously undermine America's national sovereignty, our free speech, and even human dignity. And the public comment period for this on this proposed agreement, it's underway right now, but it ends on Monday, January 22nd, Monday. This whole time for you to have your input. So we are asking you to step up to the plate and let your voice be known. If you would like to submit a comment expressing your concern, and this is the concern, this agreement is giving more power to an unelected, unaccountable international organization that literally threatens our national sovereignty, our free speech, our human dignity, and you have an opportunity to comment. And to voice your opposition to this you've got two options that we have available for you you can visit frcaction.org slash who and of course who stands for world health organizations again that's frcaction.org slash who or you can simply text the word who to 67742 and do that and it will direct you to the place where you can uh, place a comment and they have to respond to these. It, it just takes time for them to do all this, and we want them to hear from as many as possible. Well, joining me now to discuss this further is Travis Weber. He's a vice president for policy and government affairs at FRC. Travis, welcome back to Washington Watch. Great to see you. Thank you, Jody. All right, let's. Uh, I, I don't know of anyone, and may, perhaps they're. There's somebody, but I don't know of anyone who is more on top of this issue than you. You talk about it with great passion and great concern. So let me just toss it to you that way. What concerns you most about this effort by the World Health Organization?
6: Yeah, Jody, thank you for that question. I think what concerns me most is the subtle and hidden way that this effort uh, will shift the balance of power worldwide in a, a significant way for our time. And I say that because there are times when the uh, power shift, world, a worldwide power shift happens. We had one after the Holocaust, the creation of the United Nations and various international agreements were entered into. And what if you, if you notice what happens, there's a... Um, These are generated by, these happen at times when people understandably are focused on world events, a tragedy, difficulty. And if you look at our current circumstances, we had a worldwide pandemic that put many people into a position of saying, well, what can I, what should I do about it? So it's a good intention. However, the problem is that on the back of that good intention come actors without such good intentions or those seeking to capitalize on, manipulate, and take advantage of the current circumstances. And we believe that what is happening now is a change of uh, power, a balance of power shift in which actors will enter and seek to get their piece of the pie, so to speak, and aggregate power globally and, and get themselves a share of that power globally. Now, in this instance, it's happening through the consolidation of power into a World Health Organization-directed uh, international agreement. Uh, and what's, what's concerning about that is the language in the agreement. There's a lot of requirements and a lot of language that, that will obligate national entity nations, uh, sovereign nations, to not merely, not anymore conduct their affairs sovereignly, but rather abide by internationally governed, World Health Organization-governed agreements. It sets it a precedent, it's dangerous, and there will be the pressure of a mass, uh, uh, the thought, the, the groupthink, right? When, when you have nations coming around this, it will be difficult for nations to stand against it. So, The power shift is what is concerning about this matter that we're addressing, and we encourage folks to make their concerns known to our government, which is currently participating in this negotiating process, and folks can do that at the link that uh, you mentioned, Jody.
1: So we're not really, from what you're talking about, this is not about world health oversight. This appears to me, from what I'm hearing, there's a greater goal in this, of uh, really eliminating national sovereignty. What what would you say is, in your estimation, the ultimate goal in WHO doing yeah. all of this?
6: So on the surface, you know, it's on the surface, it's about health. The text of the treaty, uh, they're, adre- they're trying to say that they're trying to address, um, you know, the next pandemic that happens or the next uh, world health emergency. The problem with that is, is The problem with that is what's not in the text of the treaty, what's not being explicitly recognized and and discussed. And that is the power shift that I just mentioned. And so they're using, again, piggybacking on an understandable uh, point of concern, because who's against good health? I mean, no one's against good health. The question is, what do you mean by that? And what are you doing to achieve good health? And, And what else is happening at that time? And so they're using this good aim that everyone will agree upon to... Uh, to implement a change that will result in abuse and manipulation by those who want uh, to benefit and capitalize on this, this trend towards world power that will occur if this treaty is, and this agreement is finalized and implemented and acted upon. And it will set a precedent for further such world events, whether they concern health or something else.
1: Well, you and your uh, government affairs colleagues, uh, you speak with members of Congress, uh, you speak with their staff all the time. I, I'm, I'm curious as to the level of awareness that members of Congress and their staff have as it relates to the danger of this agreement. How would you make that uh, assessment
6: yeah I think there's not enough awareness overall we some are focused on this uh, but we need more and, and and look it's understandable people are generally naturally initially focused in their local communities we all are so we naturally look at what's around us what affects our neighbors ourselves in our communities and localities um, and 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 that's you know that very th- our local communities uh, are not disconnected from these the national trends and international trends. So I want to recognize this this pressure and this reality. However, this is very dangerous, this this agreement that we're discussing here, and it will ultimately affect one's local community. Even, you know, if you take the issue of the funds used to support this, where are they coming from? They're coming from uh, the nations of the world, and and the U.S. has a, a big share to pay to the WHO and that's supportive of the average American taxpayer. Do they know where their funds are going? Do they know what they're being used for? Very concerning, because there's a lot of darkness around this process. We don't have a lot of light and transparency on the flow of funds from the average taxpayer who's working hard to support their family and get by, the flow of those funds into our national coffers and into into the international coffers. So, um, Jody, I think for these reasons, Every member of Congress should be concerned about this. Every American should be concerned about this because we're all, uh, our our resources are being used to do what's happening now in this negotiating process in the lead up to May of 2024 when the text will be considered in a final stage.
1: Travis Weber, thank you so much for bringing this information and for staying on top of this and so many other issues that you stay on top of. We're grateful for all you do. Thanks for joining us on Washington Watch. Thank you, Jody. All right. Once again, Monday is the deadline to submit your comments to help us gum up this whole process. That's really, at this point, what we're trying to do. Gum it up. Monday is the deadline. You can place your comments, once again, by visiting frcaction.org who or simply text the word WHO to 67742. Again, that's the word WHO to 67742. All right, in a House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee hearing yesterday, Congresswoman Debbie Lesko pressed NCAA President Charlie Baker as to why he, at least so far, has dodged any meetings with Uh, former NCAA athletes regarding the issue of men in women's sports. Well, he did commit to Congresswoman Lesko to sit down for a future meeting. But still, the question is, why has he been so afraid so far to deal with this issue? Well, joining me now to discuss this is Macy Petty, who has just completed her final season as an NCAA volleyball player, and she was there when the uh, president, NCAA President Charlie Baker, avoided a previous meeting with Riley Gaines and other current and former athletes. So, Macy, welcome back to Washington Watch. I appreciate you coming on.
7: Hey, thank you so much for having me.
1: All right, so you were there with Riley Gaines and other current and former NCAA athletes when the uh, president of that uh, group, Charlie Baker, refused to meet with you. Uh, Tell us about that.
7: That's exactly right. I was there. And as an NCAA athlete, I was actually allowed into the convention. That's a space to be able to converse, um, uh, interact in different educational. Opportunities to hear about what's going on in the NCAA, and so I took this opportunity as an NCAA athlete. I walked in with the letter uh, signed by the entire coalition, several former and current coaches and athletes and Olympians, and I just simply said, "I want to put it in Charlie Baker's hands or uh, Dr. Livingstone, the the chair of the board of governors." And they replied with, "They don't have time." Uh, well, I'm an NCAA delegate and a female athlete that they govern, and, and was told that they don't have time for me. And, and I honestly wasn't surprised. I've been in the organization for four years and I've been knocking on the door and, and still no response.
1: It's just remarkable the, the lack of willingness to address this straight up. I mean, uh, the video is out there for people to see. No one in your group looks scary to me. I mean, uh, what, what are they so afraid of?
7: that's exactly right I, I, I actually did uh, have the opportunity to see dr. Livingstone the, the chair of the board and I and I put it in her hands and I told her that I would appreciate her considering all female athletes and that I look forward to her response and she couldn't even look me in the eye because if she did she would be looking at the female athletes that her harmful policies are affecting and and she would have to come face to face with those convictions and she couldn't she couldn't even look me in the eye and I think that's very telling of the entire NCAA they don't want to have a conversation with us about it, because their position is indefensible.
1: It really is indefensible, a great word. I think that just uh, summarizes their entire position. Now, Charlie Baker did commit to a meeting in that congressional hearing uh, that I referenced, uh, uh, the the hearing that took place yesterday. What are you hoping will come out of that meeting that he's agreed to have?
7: Well, like I said earlier, I want them to have to come face-to-face with the female athletes that their policies hurt. Um, I want him to have to see our, our eyes and hear our stories come out of our mouths about the, the destruction that is happening inside of women's sports. Um, it's, it was just kind of a, a sure from Charlie Baker. But I think that it needs to be noted that this has been a long effort. Um, I myself have been fighting this fight my entire college career. I'm now a senior in college. Um, and so it, this is not a small feat for us. We're, we're excited to finally have this conversation.
1: Well, I want to play a, a clip here for you, and I w- I'd love to get your reaction. I thought this was a great exchange. Uh, this was, again, from the hearing yesterday. This is Congresswoman Kat Kamek. She was questioning. Uh, NCAA president uh, yesterday. Play clip two, please. Can you commit today to reversing the NCAA's
2: policy adopted under your predecessor that allows biological men to compete in women's
0: sports? First of all, I would just say I understand the, the reason this issue is such a complicated one for people and such a challenging one. Respectfully,
2: it is not difficult. It is not complicated. It's DNA. There are physiological differences and let's follow the science that's that should be the position
1: all right that's a great exchange right there do you agree that uh, there really is a simple solution to this whole issue
7: It absolutely is. It's so simple, and it even says it in the Bible. Male and female, he created them. Um, And and our sports have reflected it. As long as we've had sports in volleyball, men's volleyball nets are over seven inches higher. It's not complicated. Everyone knows it. Uh, Men's and women's sports have to be separated. And if they're not separated based on sex, then it really doesn't even matter.
1: Well, it really doesn't. And I thought uh, Kat Kamek did a great job there. Look, this is DNA. This, there are physiological differences, follow the science. This is not a difficult issue. I, I mean, you're not asking for anything but for women to compete in women's sports. I mean, that's pretty basic. Is that a, a, an accurate summary?
7: Absolutely, boys have to play on boys' teams, girls have to play on girls' teams. It's, it's like she said, not that complicated.
1: So where do you think this goes from here? Uh, I think, at the end of the day, you're going to win this battle. What, what What's your take? Where does it go from here?
7: I agree. Uh, it's It can go one of two ways. Either Charlie Baker can can end this honeymoon season of, oh, keep pushing it off, I'm, an, I'm a new president, I have other things I need to work on, or he can stand up and actually fight for female athletes and, and have this... Um, champion of female athletes like he's been pretending to be really come to life and and protect it and nip it in the bud where we are now or we can wait and let this slippery slope continue like I said I've been following this for years and so I've continued to see it snowball and we can continue to see it snowball until women's sports don't exist anymore we have to fight for title nine all over again and, and uh, that's something I really hope we don't, to we go don't have to go, go to but Uh, Either way, I I am hoping that we we win this issue in the long run because, as we said, it's totally indefensible and and it doesn't
1: work. Thank you, Macy Petty. That's all for this day and this week of Washington Watch. Hope you have a fantastic weekend, friends. We'll see you next week right here on Washington Watch.